Welcome! Welcome! <laughs> Hi guys, welcome back to Lars Labour's Watch, your favourite, we hope, art and culture podcast, blah blah blah. Yeah, um, we are really excited to talk to you today about some of the things we've been enjoying since we last spoke yeah, to you. Yeah, it's been a summer of like interesting stuff, I think, in the entertainment world. Like a lot of stuff started becoming, sometimes we have a bit of a drought. Yeah, we do sometimes, and I think... Yeah. Uh, it, it, we sort of had all the Oscar movies, which we discussed a lot mm. of them on here. Yeah. And then we kind of did have a bit of a gap. And now we've got the sort of summer blockbusters. Yeah. Um, and just sort of big movies that everyone's excited about. Um, so one of those, which I feel like we could just launch straight into. Yes. Is Ocean's 8. Yes, Ocean's 8, which we watched two weeks ago. Yeah. Around the time it was first out. Yeah. So um, I'm sure most of you are aware of what the film is, the context of it, but for anyone who isn't, it's a kind of sequel of sorts to Ocean's Eleven, um, the George Clooney star vehicle. Yeah, Yeah. heist movie. Classic. um, Which actually itself was a sort of updated version of... Ocean's... Eight? Yeah. No, Again? Ocean's, Ocean's 11. Nine? Uh, 11? Oh, like, we clearly haven't done our research. It's, but, oh, it's obviously part of a series. Which was like a Rat Pack kind of film. It had like mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra in. and Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's, as you can sort of tell from those names, like very much like a boys club. Mm-hmm. Like, which I think heist movies often are, aren't they? It's like a gang of men get together and they oh, have to kind of... absolutely, you're right. Like, you think about, I don't know, you think about um, uh, the not Christmas film Die Hard that's, you know, men trying to take a... Or Tower Heist, that one with Ben Stiller in it. That was all... Yeah, also all men. So it is definitely uh, a f- series of films, a, ca- a film genre. Fast and Furious is another yeah. kind of example, which may involve one or two women, often as romance vehicles. Like femme fatales, you know. Or, um, you know, someone like Letty in the Fast and Furious films, mm. who is kind of more just like a badass woman, but she's only one of them. Um, so, you know, the Ocean's 8 franchise is kind of a franchise which I think some people, like Ghostbusters, for example, saw as a classic that could be a good way to, like have a bit of a gender update to make it relevant and also then earn some more money for the franchise. Yeah, so this new movie is a pretty much all-female cast, um, Ocean's 8. So you've got Sandra Bullock, who plays uh, Debbie Ocean. Yeah. Uh, the sister of Danny Ocean, George Clooney's character. Who, spoiler, spoiler, seems to be dead. Seems to be dead, but both Helen and I were quite worried at the end that he was going to be <laughs> surprise. Kind of like, hey guys, I'm not dead after all. Fortunately, that didn't happen. It does, um, yeah. But yeah, they kind of keep it deliberately vague. I think so that in the future they could potentially have a Sandra and George That'd kind of cool. double vehicle, which I think people would be yeah. quite into. But for this film, it's very much like your favourite Hollywood actresses banding together to go and rob the Met Ball, which is what we all want to see. So mm-hmm. you've got... Kate Blanchett, she's kind of Sandra Bullock's... Girlfriend, basically. Girlfriend slash right-hand man. Slash partner, slash enabler, like, does enforcer. She doesn't really seem to do much, aside from just, like, be there and be sassy. Because there's a gang, obviously, of eight women, and most of them have, I would say, a fairly clear-cut role. Special skills, yeah. Uh, Kate Blanchett doesn't particularly, unless that skill is wearing great pantsuits. That is a a true skill. (laughs) Um, And then they get Rihanna... As in the Rihanna, just Rihanna, uh, to be she's like a kind of code breaker, Techie hacker kind of girl, girl yeah. yeah. Um, and she's able to kind of like you know get the security down and like in a know, way that real hackers are like that's not how hacking works, but for movies it works. Yeah, fine. And then um, a relative newcomer, apparently she's a rapper, Aquafina. Mm-hmm. She plays a kind of pickpocket, pickpocket like. Younger, cool girl. Yeah, you know, l- light-fingered person. And then we have Mindy Kaling, who plays the jewellery 
diamond expert. Yeah. Um, we also have... Helena Bonham Carter. Oh my gosh, Who yes. is like a, a fashion designer who they sort of rope in um, as part of the scheme. And she's sort of got problems with problems with money and that's kind of why she gets involved. Yeah, she's... She basically, it's IRS, is that who it is? Yeah, I who, think so. Who's my IRS? And they say like, oh, she's big in the 90s, big Edwardian collars. So they kind of make these in-jokes really about Helena Bonham Carter. Style in general. Um, and yeah, she kind of is Helena Bonham Carter, I would say. Not implying that Helena Bonham Carter has actually committed any crime but she's got that sort of eccentricity and we have a fun Helena Bonham Carter fact we do is that Helena Bonham Carter is my namesake my mum called me Helena after Helena Bonham Carter so you know anything with her in I mean I mean I adore Helena Bonham Carter in every single way anyway so we're happy to see her in that so we've got nearly everybody. Are we missing anyone? Oh, and Sarah Paulson yes. as like <laughs> she's great. She's like a stay-at-home mom slash fence, which is great because like she just acts as a mom. She calls her kids while she's at work, yeah. and is also a very very good seller of stolen goods. Yeah, um, that's all of them, right? Aside from <gasps> the queen, herself, the goddess Anne Hathaway, who <laughs> who is a Hollywood actress who they get to wear these jewels that they then want to steal. So you think they're kind of taking advantage of her, but there is a bit of a twist at the end, uh, which we won't go into. Uh, you already spoiled enough yeah. the uh, But, you know, it's kind of... A, it turns itself on its head a bit. But Anne Hathaway has very much been heralded as, like, the really standout performer in this film because mm-hmm. she kind of spoofs the image of her as this uptight, self-involved actress, which I always thought was very unfair anyway. Yeah, um, absolutely. And they... And, in, you know, she sort of very much plays that role of this woman who's, like, very sort of self-obsessed and, mm-hmm. um, you know, obsessed with her own image. And, uh, yeah, so she really goes to town with it and has a lot of fun. And I think a lot of people, not us, but a lot of people, have sort of forgotten that Anne Hathaway had these comedy chops, you know? Yeah, it's like Rachel McAdams. Like, yeah. she came in, she came roaring back in with this game night film. Everyone's like, Rachel McAdams, hilarious! And you're like, yeah, she's been hilarious since Mean Girls. Yeah. Anne Hathaway has been... Just a force. Be- I mean, I, people see her. People saw her in Miz, right? Didn't they? This is it. Where yeah. she like cried a lot on screen, offered to throw herself out the window. As <laughs> can, a we just, can we just go into that? Like, it's just story. OTT. Like, so Anne Hathaway was so committed to Miz, which we all know, and she won the Oscar for it, and she was very good in the movie. Yes, yeah, very but- good. Because she was Catwoman, you know, she also played Catwoman, she offered to throw herself out of the window as a dead corpse in the movie. To make it really realistic. And the film directors were like, no. Like, like you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that, yeah. So she, and I think people found her very earnest, and she got a lot of hatred, which was very, I mean, a lot of people have now pointed to that and said it was very sexist, because men who, like, in like fully embraced films, Tom Cruise or, um... What's his name? Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. Are heralded as incredible actors. Like method actors. And it's yeah. like, wow, they really got into their role. Whereas if Anna Hathaway, it was like, okay, calm down. You like, know? You're taking it too far. Yeah. It's like Alexandra Burke when she was on. Um, yeah, that's on, a good example. Like, I mean, she was on Strictly. Expected. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, like both times she was kind of seen for like getting too involved and not like restraining her emotions. Uh, or her attitude but it's like actually if you're a hard worker and you're dedicated and you're enthusiastic then it does kind of come through but people see it as um especially if you're a woman people see it as uh twee and like yeah and uh, people false, don't people don't, don't like it they like the kind of much more like laid back like, cool, cool girl persona like embodied by jennifer lawrence for example or emma stone like but in the end they just both seem conceited to me and also i'm sure they are actually probably much more like anne hathaway really yeah like, sure, you must be hard working to be successful and like, it doesn't just are, happen yeah. to you and they're they are hard working and they're clearly very intelligent and thoughtful in the same way that anne hathaway is mm-hmm. but they've just got a different way of like presenting themselves you yeah, know absolutely so anyway anne hathaway we love 
love you, Anne Hathaway. Yeah. You're not listening, but My we dad, love you. My um, once saw Anne Hathaway at the airport and he was with a colleague, so he didn't personally recognise her because uh, yeah, he wouldn't, but his colleague was like, oh, that's Anne Hathaway. And my dad went up to her and said, you're my daughter's favourite actress. <laughs> because he he knew that she was in The Princess Diaries and knew how much I loved that film like, yeah. growing up. So um, yeah, that always made me happy because that was around the time that she was getting this like hatred. So hopefully that made her day. But anyway, so she's great in the film and... All in all, it's like got this really kind of great cast and great starting point, I think. Really interesting. Like, it's not... People kind of talked about Ghostbusters, I think, in a way that they're like, ugh, because it's literally just a remake. Yeah. Like, the story's not that different. They The characters the same concept, are really. parallels to yeah. the characters in the male... In the male film, in the film with, you know... The original. The yeah. original men. So people were kind of like, oh, it's stupid. Like, it's not doing a job... That it's, it's not really doing anything aside from just being a bit like a, a rehash. And I'm like... I mean, I enjoy Ghostbusters. But equally, I can see that, you know, it's maybe not as interesting to have a female-only film, which is just like a remake. But Ocean's 8 was kind of a bit more fresh in that they were taking a heist film concept and just mm-hmm. replacing everyone with, not replacing, but had a whole female cast. Yeah, and they made the plot completely different. And I mean, I, I did read a few criticisms where they said, by making the film about stealing jewels and about wearing, you know, nice outfits, it was kind of you know, catering to a female audience. But oh, sure. I, I don't know, I feel like in my experience, like limited experience of watching these kind of heist movies, mm-hmm. they do tend to be very glamorous. You know, in- Tom Cruise always glam he glams yeah. up every single time. And and one of the things in the film actually is Sandra Bullock has George Clooney's watch, which is like this is, you know, a very like swanky watch. So yeah. I do think I don't think that's unique. And like when I think of Ocean's eight uh, Ocean's eleven, sorry, the the male version I picture, like, the men, like, strutting along in their suits. In the dinner jackets, yeah. Yeah, so I I think um, that's a bit of an unfair criticism. Um, And in the end, I think you don't... The whole point about this is you don't just make it the women version. Like, you actually... You make it kind of more... Not more feminine, because that's not a bad thing. You just tailor it to the actresses and their talents and the story that you want to tell. I mean, I feel like... One of the reasons they said it at the Met Gala was so they could have these like fun celebrity cameos. They so did have got a lot of those, yeah. Anna Wintour, you know, the editor of Vogue, and apparently it's the real life Vogue offices and also Vogue and ed- other Vogue editors who were just right, like in the background, yeah. yeah. And like you say, the Kardashians at the Met Gala and you know various uh, Serena Williams. Oh, right? Serena Williams. Yeah. So it's um, it's kind of got that element of like fun, like celebrity spotting as well, and mm-hmm. um. So overall, Helena, what did you think of the movie? Um, I enjoyed it, to be honest with you. Um, what, one great thing that I love about it, which I said about Love, Simon as well, back in another podcast, which you should listen to later, yeah. um, is that it has its flaws. And that's great, because in the end, these films that are breaking boundaries are, in the end, they're meant to be mainstream, and they're meant to be doing all the same things that the other mainstream films do. So, like, the fact that I had criticisms of it that were very similar to high, other heist films, that it's a bit simplistic, it's a bit also over the top um the ending twist is kind of a bit contrived mm. that happens all the time in heist films and yeah. it fulfilled all the tropes of a heist film and i'm like i enjoyed that because in the end i don't want to go to see an all-female film and be like oh my god i feel like i'm beaten over the head beaten around the head by like a you know a what's the word a moral stick yeah i just want to go and see a whole bunch of women have a great time and that's essentially what i got to go and see yeah i think you're right i think um, there can be this expectation, and we definitely did discuss this with Love, Simon, that when a film is breaking boundaries, it has to... Be perfect. Yeah, it has to be this incredible film in every mm-hmm. sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And I think this movie definitely has its flaws. Like, it, it is... You know, it's not always as laugh out loud hilarious as it should be. There are some really funny moments, oh, yeah. often coming from Anne Hathaway. And we love you. Um, but 
And, and most of the actors get their chance to shine and get their moments, mm-hmm. uh, but it can also suffer occasionally from having a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, and actually not a lot of time to devote to all the characters. Yeah, so. absolutely, I agree with that. I think Sandra Bullock is a constant throughout the film, and being Sandra Bullock, she is fantastic and has such a great comedic turn, which we knew she, about her already. She does, she has such good timing. In fact, they all do, I would they definitely. All do, and definitely. actually, um, Rihanna, I mean, I've never seen her act before. I don't think any of us have. And she is very much like stands her own against these Hollywood greats. Like, yeah, she's pretty good. absolutely. And I think it the script was quite tight and fun. I didn't feel like it was dragging at any point. I think um, I kept expect I kept wait, I kept waiting for the um, waiting for like the bad thing to happen. And that's one thing I had a problem with is that like by the end, the first three quarters, great, and the highs was completed, and then nothing bad happened, like. There was, I feel like there was a bit of a hole for me, yeah, and it, it was a bit too successful. Well, they have, they have this, you know, James Corden appears, which I definitely think is a very valid criticism of the film, Stupid. because it was quite unnecessary to have him play that role. Like, they definitely could have had another woman play that role, rather than bringing in James Corden. But he basically plays this insurance man who is trying to solve the crime. But rather than being a traditional police detective, he's more concerned with just kind of going home and, like... He just wants to get it sorted. And he has a prior relationship with the Ocean family, yeah, I think, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, with Sandra Bullock. So that means that, as you say, the tension kind of isn't really there because you know that, um, well, he's clearly kind of almost on their side, really. Yeah, so absolutely. So they get away with it quite easily. And then they frame who they want to frame very easily. And that also, I mean, obviously it's completely fine for, you know, I mean, so Sandra Bullock has been wronged by this man and sent to jail. Yeah, and that's why she ended up in jail. Yeah. And like one of the underlying themes is that she wants to get her own back. And then her girlfriend, okay, not literally, but like they're basically like full on, girlfriend, yeah. full on partners. Um, you know, Cape um, Blanchett is sort of like, dude, you can't just do this and risk all of our risk us all going to jail for revenge. And she was like, no, I'm going to be able to do this. It's going to be absolutely fine. And of course it is absolutely fine. But the kind of motive of like female revenge, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned kind of thing, is a bit like, okay, I mean, fine. It's kind of a bit overplayed. But then again, for Sandra Bullock's character of Debbie Ocean, I'm like, actually, like, I see yeah. that she would do that. I think, because it's like, as a woman, you're sort of watching it and thinking, oh, it's a slight shame that her motivation for committing this kind of, like, quite cool crime, crime yeah. is to get revenge on an ex-partner. But then, as you say, you know, this is a film about, like, criminals. Like, they don't have to, like, be held up to, like, the standards of morality that we would like to practice in our day-to-day life. Yeah, like, know? sometimes you just want revenge. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's fun. Like, at the end, you see, like, what they're all doing with their, like, newfound money and kind of success. And it's just it's just a generally fun film. I feel like, you know, looking at... We watched it two weeks ago. When I think about it, I'm like, oh, that was fun. We had a good time, you know? Yeah. The audience had a good time watching it in yeah. general. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of great, like, female... The great thing, I think, about women working together is oftentimes you get this real sense of, like, camaraderie between the actresses. Mm. Because, I'm sorry, it's women there's just less egos hanging around when it comes to a group of women being together. And they always have this, like, buddy friendship. Like, I I don't see this as much in, like, you know, you know, you saw it in Grace Bosses as well, that the women chat about their feelings, they mm. chat about their problems, they sit together, they enjoy being together, they play up to the strength, they're, like, a real team. And I feel like the cohesiveness of the female friend team is something you don't get to see very often. It's so true. And, and actually, think... you see it in this movie. Yeah, and a lot of actors, actresses have said in recent times, um, you know, in light of the meeting, to movement yeah. um, that they really enjoyed this kind of banding together of women mm-hmm. and getting to support one another because mm-hmm. so often they're like the one female character in, mm-hmm. in a movie so they don't get to form those bonds with their co-stars in the same way 
and I yeah I really enjoyed like you know watching the groups being interviewed I mean it's similar with Mamma Mia 2 here we go again which we will discuss <laughs> at a later date because Helen has yet to see it but it's but great. I know the whole story uh, yeah I basically described the whole story on the you shoot. don't need to care about the story um, do you there is no story but I you know that's a similar film in that you get to see like this bond between like Meryl Streep and Christine Baranski and yeah. Amanda Seyfried and Lily James and it's it's really fun to get to see actresses you know make those friends like it mm-hmm. sounds a bit strange when you say it out loud but I think they're so often like you're watching a film and it's just full of men and there's this one woman so yeah. yeah it is It is. I think it's a good sign that Ocean's 8 has been successful and hopefully they'll like follow it up with similar yeah, things yeah because if you look at it I mean it's okay, it's a man's world out there guys <laughs> and just being able to kind of see the like the power of the, the female friendships and it being represented on screen is great. Like the sister, of, I mean, it goes. I mean, these things aren't the sister uncommon. Of the traveling pals. Yeah, that, can we, that's yeah. a great example of something like and that. And also, that's such a nice example. Yeah, because those four actresses, you know, who have become very successful as individuals since that film came out when they were in their teens. You've got Blake Lively, Alexis Bledel, um, America, Amber, Amber Tamblin, and is America uh, Ferrera. America Ferrera, yeah. yeah. And they're still friends. They, like, go to each other's baby showers. Mm -hmm. They're always, like, supporting one another on Instagram. And it's really sweet. And I think so many women like us grew up watching that film and seeing that they're still friends and they're supporting one another. Mm -hmm. Even though, I mean, like, Alexis Bledel and Blake Lively were both on TV shows at the same time that, in theory, could have been, you know... They could have been pitted against rivals, yeah. But actually, having it as being like, no, these are just women who care about one another and support one another yeah. and are excited by one another's successes, which is much more relatable to yeah. us than watching two women supposedly having some cat fight that the media have like dreamt up. Yeah, and I think it's absolutely. I think it's re- it's really great, and it's not an it's not hasn't. It's not as if it hasn't happened before. No. Um, the same thing with diverse films, like you know, diversity in film, but equally it's particularly sometimes rare. So now the fact that films like Ocean's A, we said the same thing with Black Panther. Mm. It's the same thing with Wonder Woman. Yeah. The films that have female leads, diverse leads, or all female casts, the fact that they do well and people care about them is hopefully that's going to do its part in convincing, you know, Hollywood execs who are the ones funding everything. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a lack of these projects being uh, optioned. It's more the fact that they, what gets picked up and what doesn't. Yeah. And I, it'd be really nice to see, you know, and I, you're absolutely right with Mamma Mia, in that that's all about female friendships and female love. Yeah, and also women going out and doing what they want to. I mean, I, when I was talking about it to Helena, and we will discuss this more when we talk about that film. Yeah. Um, you know, you could easily have got in a position where Lily James slash Meryl Streep's character is being judged or slut-shamed for her actions. But instead, it's very much like, oh, she's this young woman who wants to explore the world, yeah, have fun, you know, meet new people. And that's just very much celebrated. And, you know, actually, of course, the original Mamma Mia film came out 10 years ago. We were still, you know, young teenagers at that point. And I think it is empowering to watch that at a young age. And it excites me to think of, like young people being able to watch movies like Black Panther or Wonder Woman or Ocean's 8 and Mm -hmm. just enjoy these blockbusters where it's not just this like straight white man at the centre. And they're represented like the straight white men who turned up were either the the villain or just like superfluous. Yes, exactly. There was a really great line in it which I really liked. Mm -hmm. I think other criticisms I heard that people thought that the white male director had not made enough of the cast that he had which I kind of see like it you know, it could have been, a, there could have been a bit more playing off the characters themselves, but equally I feel like as a, it's an ensemble cast, it's hard to... It, I think, yeah, I, I do everyone. understand that criticism too, but I also think, yeah, having eight different characters, whoever they are, having them all have equal screen time is kind of tricky. Yeah, so, yeah. I know, we'll give him that, but there was a great line in it which I really liked, where Kate Blanchett and Sandra Bullock are looking for another member of the team. 
Um, and they're look, I think they're looking for a hacker. No, yes, they are looking for the right. hacker. And then Kate Blanchett is like, look, they're looking for like CVs mm. kind of thing. And then Kate Blanchett's like, what about this guy? And Sandra Bullock's like, no men. And then Kate's like, you can't just say no men because you hate this guy that, you know, yeah. put you in prison. And she's like, no, men get noticed, women don't. And you're like, that's the thing as well. Like, A, it's kind of like woke. And B, it's sort of like actually like taking control of the disadvantages women face and make it work, work in your favour. Yeah, and, and I think that's it because then they're all, they all, during the heist kind of play a role which allows them to sort of be unnoticed mm-hmm. you know whether it's they're working in the catering or you know even as like a glamorous guest which like Sandra Bullock sort of plays that role none of them really get noticed uh whereas yeah men tend to be much more noticeable yeah and heralded you know like so yeah that was a that was a good line definitely she yeah did that well. so I think in the end the film the boys set out to do stupidized film but it's just it was so cool. It's the same thing with Wonder Woman. You watch it and you're just like, I love all these women. I love watching all of them. They're all amazing and inspiring people. Yeah. And I just had a great time. Yeah, Woo-hoo. exactly. I, don't, I mean, don't go into it thinking you're going to see some some groundbreaking like, revolutionary film. concept because it is still just, yeah, like a fun heist film. But yeah. you have got this exciting group of women at the centre of it, which is just fun to watch. Yeah. And Kate Blanchett wears many amazing pantsuits. She really does, yeah. She won't put on a dress, just pantsuits only. She's great. And yeah. she rides a motorcycle. She does. And that's yeah. her goal, just to ride a motorcycle into the distance. Yeah. I love her. I absolutely adore her. It's great. Yeah. So that's, Ooh. yeah, we had a great time. <laughs> what should we about next? Right, and so another thing that actually we've been getting back into recently is um, BBC's Poldark. Yeah, so those Season of you four. who have been listeners from the beginning um, will know that when we first started this podcast... Oh, humble beginnings. Uh, we mostly talked about Poldark because we kind of had the idea at the time that we thought we would just sort of discuss one thing at a time and it's kind of morphed into now that like, we tend to discuss multiple things in one episode. Yeah. Um, so we talked quite a lot about... Um, Paul Dyke, and that was like series two that we kind of talked about in detail. Um, yeah. We're now on series four, uh, right? Series four, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the trials and tribulations continue. Literally. Disaster down the mine. All the time. Unexpected Mar- hangings. Yeah. <laughs> Marriage difficulties yeah. constantly with um, everybody. Lots of children of random ages that don't really make sense in terms of the timeline. Also, yes. And also, Ross not caring about his children whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, Ross still being very good looking despite oh, that and hot um, doctor Demelza still being yeah amazing hot doctor who we've who, seen who yeah we've seen in real life in fact actually fun Paul Dark fact okay these are all the actors that we have just like seen wandering around in London number one hot doctor who Helena saw in Clapham Luke Norris yeah uh, with the baby on a bus in yes. Clapham uh, and he knew he knew I knew who he was and he thought he definitely thought I stalked him to the prenatal <laughs> physiotherapy centre which I did not Luke Norris I live on that road okay I had to go home. Sorry. Number two, Francis, R.I.P. I love Francis. On like Waterloo Bridge or something. Yeah, like. I did see on Waterloo Bridge. Yeah. Um, number three, uh, recently I have seen Morwenna. Oh yeah. Yeah, in Soho. Um, also, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy who played—he wasn't a very big character, but he played like the MP, and he is now in Mamma Mia too. Um, MP. Young Colin Firth. And what he, MP? He like nearly married um, Caroline. Oh yes, the the, we, the the stupid man. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name, but anyway, I've seen him also in Soho, 
And then recently I saw George Warleggan. You did! I you did! Yes, you did. And we had like major eye contact, and in real life he's very good looking. <laughs> I will go on record. Maybe because he that. puts his chin down in real life. Yeah, I think it's because obviously he's a very good actor and he plays this like very slimy, Heinous. um yeah. up to no good character. And obviously mm. in real life he was just like sitting chilling and he seemed quite nice. But I did say over text, because I wasn't there, um that you know it was like a opportunity to go and say hi. I honestly interested in your note-taking yeah i was really tempted but i just felt like even if i could make conversation so he was reading uh this book about like 1930s the 1930s right and i was like <laughs> yeah. that was literally what it was called like, it was very fake <laughs> why is he so interested in the 1930s I think it was like, so my guess was that he was researching a role because like he was he was taking notes right and we were like sitting opposite opposite each one another in Waterstone. Good looking. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, watch as a poldock are gonna be like really, but no, in real life he is. But no, I was tempted to say something, but I just thought, well, you know, what do you say? Because I, at some point it's gonna come out that I've like watched him for four years as and then George the romance Morgan. begins, like in um, Pretty Women. Which one is it when they're they're, fam- they're a famous actress? Oh, Notting, Notting Hill. Hill. Yeah. Well, I really like. I don't think I've ever been so close to considering saying some saying hello to a famous person. <sighs> Next time. Um, but you know, I I won't name this Waterstones in case I should know. He's concerned about his privacy, but. I did think to myself, like, if he often comes here, maybe maybe next time. Anyway, it may gave me a newfound appreciation for his acting skills because mm. in real life he seemed he seemed quite. And normal. you think you've seen Aiden Turner leaving the gym as well? Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. So literally, the whole Poldark cast seemed to be interacting with us but in different I think ways it's because they're all kind of they're they're quite well known, but equally within the context of kind of mm. Britain, which is like and the British TV, and we both work in like central London, and I feel like. A lot of people tend to live in like or work there, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's kind of why. Anyway, the fourth series began. The third series uh, was a bit kind of well. The, I think that yeah. the second and third series had a lot of issues because we had this. Uh, they had this very difficult plotline that they had to follow from the books, which yeah. they received a lot of criticism. Which about. included two extramarital affairs, one of which may or may not been consensual. The other one was kind of trying to deal with sort of like you know uh, abandonment and blah 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 and then you also had like a lot of um unhappy unhappy marriages kind of disasters that they have to keep going with with the mines and with like the revolution in france and it kind of got a bit like obviously bbc i think tried their best but they also can't move from the plot that much i think it's tricky when you've got like a book that you're adapting for screen in that way because you can kind of choose to eschew certain storylines that you don't think fit. But when it actually really drives the plot, as with these two um yeah, these two affairs that took place, you can't like not involve you not can't not include them. Um mm. anyway, since then we've now kind of moved on and the beginning of series four, which started um, you know, oh, a couple four, of weeks ago, weeks ago yeah, in, in the UK and I think is broadcasting in America during the summer slash autumn. Mm. Um that began with kind of Ross and Demelza very much deciding to um, you work know, work their at their marriage, marriage yeah. yeah, and sort of get things back on track. Um, and because the mind was finally behaving for a while, <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, um, you know, most people were fairly happy, aside from Morwenna, who is Elizabeth's cousin. For those of you who haven't been watching recently, yeah. who is unhappily married to this terrible, evil vicar, toe sucking vicar, uh, who, well, actually being in love with this very handsome. Um, Ooh, yes. brother of Demelza called Drake. So that's been happening. And you also see Elizabeth and 
George's relationship. Which is quite fun to watch, I say. Like, it is. Like, they're both kind of evil at each other. And yeah. I'm actually enjoying it. Like, George, Elizabeth does make George happy. Yeah, I think they do. But however, of course, one of the issues that they've got at play is that Elizabeth and George have a son who... He's uh, very obviously not his son. He's clearly supposed to be Ross's son from their very problematic liaison. A liaison, yes. Uh, so, and that is made very obvious in typical TV fashion by him just, like, resembling Ross. <laughs> Even though... Curly like, black hair. There we go. But Elizabeth also has, like, curly dark hair. So, like, I do feel as though... You, you, you which know. is why George is able to convince himself that Valentine is indeed his yeah, son. Yeah. But I, I, think, gonna... I think he's Baron, personally. Well, you know, this is going to cause an issue because in... So Helena and I are at slightly different points oh, in yes, the series. Sorry, yeah. um, this is a minor spoiler, but I don't think you'll mind. Eh, um, I haven't seen the most recent episode, but from where I'm up to, Elizabeth is, is pregnant. <gasps> um, Gasp. Yes, but she has kind of devised this plan that she has to give birth in eight months in order to convince George that the previous son uh, was no. really his child, because basically she had the son, in theory, in eight months. Obviously, she actually had it in You're not a premature children, right? Yeah, so I think this is going to cause some issues. But anyway, how have you been enjoying Paul's art? Yes, we always end, up, always end up going for this format, don't we? Yeah. It's um, yeah. <laughs> always me asking you. Because we so, end up getting off I'm track. I'm so thoughtful. So thoughtful. Um, yes, I'm enjoying it a lot more. I didn't really watch the, end of season, watch the last five episodes of season three, to be honest with you, because I got sick of all the drama and stupidity. And a lot of the plot vehicles are just Ross being stupid and narrow and short-sighted and ignoring Demelza mm. to his own detriment when... Or he makes, or he beats up somebody when he's not supposed to beat them up and ends up causing a fight or getting mm. put in prison or something. Like, the amount of times he got put in prison for fighting when he shouldn't have is beyond me. And that was starting to get to me a bit. But I kind of went into this new season because I was, like, promised a kind of freshest start with Ross and Melza. And I was like, okay, like, if they're going to build their marriage, that's more interesting to me than the constant breaking down of it. It was like, I'm kind of, this kind of bores me. It can be quite lazy. And I think that there's something more interesting in exploring how a marriage is complicated yeah. and people are trying to get along despite those complications which they're kind which they were doing were were doing and I also was interested in the fact that like the, it was moving on a bit in that like you know Caroline and Hot Doctor were married and you know Elizabeth and George were pushing ahead with their career plans and it seemed that like everyone was not fighting so much as in just like they were trying to get on with their lives of course Ross still ignores his children all the time but you know can't ask for everything and I have been enjoying it quite a lot I will admit to not having seen the last couple of episodes but with the, the, the parent wife swap, which may happen at some point. But I have been really enjoying it. Um, I'm just sort of like a little bit wary still of it falling into the same holes that it always does. Yeah, I think that when it first started, um, I, I found it to be quite like moving in parts. Oh and yeah, sort of, it still is actually. And, and I still find that occasionally as well. But I think I do t- sort of enjoy it a bit more in like a kind of camp way now. You know what I mean? Like yeah. sort of leaning into like, oh, this is kind of ridiculous in parts. Like the episode that I always point out to like illustrating this is actually from season one, which maybe, you know, shows that it's always kind of been a bit like this, where there's this like recurring motif of the villagers just like standing on the edge of the cliff looking out because these fish are supposed to be coming in. Like, what do they call the fish? They're the sardines. Is that what it is? Yeah. Pilchard sardines. Okay. (laughs) Pilchards! So literally, there's just like this, this like, episode theme which is just like the villagers looking for the pilchers and they're not coming and everyone's like we're gonna stop and then eventually they come at the end and that's like like, wee the pilchers (laughs) that's like a key part of the story and like don't get me wrong like for people 
people at that time and probably still yeah. who rely on fishing as an income like that's very important but Paul's art does it in just such a silly way like all these people like standing at the cliff's edge like where are the pictures um, I remember once like joking with some friends that we should have a pole dark party and one of my friends was like I'm gonna dress as a pilchard <laughs> So anyway, it, well, you have to lean into it as being a bit you silly. You do. And I think you once do. you do that, like, it's a lot easier to enjoy. And that's but I think Paul definitely does. Like, all Aidan Turner seemingly does in that film, in that show, is moon after Elizabeth a bit, moon after Demelza, say wrong things, have fancy hair, have a fight, <laughs> be shirtless, and then ride around on a horse on the beach. Actually, a definite improvement in this series, because I feel like after that initial... Um, uproar slash excitement when in the first series when Aiden T- Turner did that topless sky thing Ooh, yeah. um, which caused so much like media distress and yes. distress and just general like yeah uh, it was an earthquake you know so after that I feel like I got the impression that he didn't really want to take his shirt off because everyone freaked out but series four literally begins with him they swimming into in it. the ocean. BBC know what we want. Yeah. It's a very, it was very Mr. Darcy. And then Hot Doctor also has his own dip in the ocean in a time of distress. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, and then of course Drake and uh, other brother Sam, they don't really care. Like those young actors are clearly like, it's cool. So they're often shirtless. Oh, maybe you haven't got that <gasps> They also have some, like, distressed swimming. Oh, yes. See, that's the thing. In the end, I think the enjoyable <laughs> thing about this show is the characters are all great. And it's just so... If you love Cornwall, like I do. I do love Cornwall. Yeah. It's so Cornish, and it's so beautifully filmed. And there are some super touching moments. Like, um, spoiler... You mean, you, 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 you don't know, but... Um, um, hot Doctor... His well, his child. He has his daughter with Caroline, right? Yeah. And then he looks at the daughter, and with his doctor vision, <laughs> it's like she has a congenital heart disease. How does he know? We don't know. But he's a super amazing doctor. My hot doctor is. He's 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 a before his time. He's basically like a medical genius. He's a wizard. Like, we have already established this. And then he this spends series. the whole two episodes holding his daughter on a cliff and not telling her until he suddenly is like, "Wait, her death will come today." And then like can randomly know. Anyway, it was stupid, but it was really touching moments yeah, between good, him and, and the very baby. Good acting. I mean, all the actors do put a hundred percent. They have it. good actors. Yeah. The, the BBC can afford good actors, and they all have good chemistry. I mean, we we talked a lot when we initially covered Paul Dark about. Eleanor Tomlinson who plays Demelza and how fantastic she is she's in the role fantastic. and I still very much stand by that and think she's she's so good at you know you always feel for Demelza and you're always on her side and I think Aidan Turner in some ways almost actually has a trickier role to play he's kind of villainous in some yeah, ways yeah he's kind of villainous but equally he's always got to be this romantic hero and I think sometimes he just says and does things that are very frustrating yeah. um, Hot Doctor and Caroline have a really cute relationship Caroline is also really really great at playing this different independent woman yeah. like Caroline's independence and her sort of like detachment from like traditional emotions yeah. is like her character and she plays it so well she does because I think that was particularly tricky in regards to the, the, the baby the, death the story with the daughter yeah yeah. Um, because it could have come over as very cold hearted or kind of it's just been a bit strange but I think she sort of plays that very well so and the cast also have very good chemistry, I think. They do. And That's they've obviously true. been working together for a long time. So there's a lot to enjoy in Paul's arc. And I think, actually, I would, I would say, I think this is probably a good concluding point, that if you did drop out of it after having been a bit put off by the, um, certainly... The mine disasters. Well, I was going to say by the kind of, you know, problematic scene with oh, Elizabeth. That, particularly, yeah. You know, I, I completely understand that, how that would make you just give up on the show. 
Um, but if you did want to like jump back in, jump back in, I think this series could be a, a point where you could do that. Yeah, because each one is kind of different. I think the BBC know it's going to be a long-running show, and they want to sort of yeah, mix it actually, up every time. Actually, this is another last point, just to yeah. contradict myself. But after this, this series is based on one of the books, right? And then the next book after this book that this series is based on jumps forward about ten years, and we see the children. So the children in in the show at the moment, we've got Jeremy. Well, I don't know their names, but Jeremy, Jeremy, and... Julia number two, the girl, yeah, the girl, and then is. George and George's child, Valentine, Valentine and Jeffrey Charles. Yeah, so Jeffrey Charles is already kind of an adult in this series, or certainly he's like a young adult. Mm-hmm. But they jump forward ten years, and we see um, the the Poldark children basically as teenagers, and that obviously allows for like you know, dramatic love More affairs. drama, So yeah. that's going to be interesting to see how the BBC choose to do depict that. that. Because so far, they have basically had about 20 years pass or something. It's very unclear. But no one has, no aged. One has aged at all. No, like, nobody has aged. Um, so they might just continue to do that. Well, it must be because Jeffrey Charles was born in the first series. Yeah. And but, he's literally 17 now. Yeah. But Jamelza and Ross and Elizabeth and George they all look, look exactly different. the same. They look exactly the same. Like, there's not even, like... At least in Outlander, they did attempt to kind of age them. Yeah, they put some grey in her hair. Here, well, they didn't, they didn't even try and age What's-His-Face. Who? Sam. Jamie. Framey. I guess he looked a bit more haggard, but only a little bit. Oh, he's a bit more haggard. Okay, they stopped putting makeup on him, but yeah. he's basically beautiful. My guess, and here is the final point, my guess is that they're going to just not bother. <laughs> I think, like, we were joking on the way when we were just walking to the podcast recording session we were joking about how sometimes a year will just pass between like two episodes in Poldark and they don't care and that's just like fine in yeah. a way that like other series would just never do um, yeah but yeah I think you've got to lean into that and it's an, it's definitely enjoyable if you're not doing anything on your Sunday night it's a great way of spending that, that hour yeah. between and 9 and 10 we love the BBC and we love the shows that they make so anything that you know, supporting them in a big bu- a big budget show of theirs is like yeah okay. like I, I'm really happy if Paul Duck does well and I also just as you said love the scenery and it's always filmed very beautifully and there's like great music and it's just enjoyable to it's watch it's enjoyable yeah so so that's our verdict on Paul Duck moving on Um, what we also want to talk about is because we read books is what kind of books we've been looking at recently yeah. and also yeah, we want to talk a bit about the man booker announcement as well so yeah so we talked um, I think before about how we've both got quite into Goodreads this past year oh, I love Goodreads and it's uh, you know for those of you who aren't aware it's an app um, also a website which allows you to track the books you've been reading bookmark uh, literally books that you want to read later quick shelves and you can kind of have friends on Goodreads so Helena and I are friends on Goodreads so I kind of see I get like email notifications about what she's reading oh really yeah yeah. do you get email oh I, you... I hate email notifications oh. so I turn them off okay well so. I have a fun game for us to play oh alright um, so the last five books that you've read on Goodreads okay you're gonna have to say the, say the name and the author uh-huh. and then like a two word summary or like brief summary okay. of what you thought. Okay, shall I go first? Yeah, go for it. We'll do. We'll should we play off. Yeah, let's. All right. Play. So the most recent one I read was called "The Hatred of Poetry" cool. by Ben Lerner, which is a uh, an essay about the fundamental discomfort that a lot of us have with the medium of poetry, and why a lot of people say I hate poetry or I can't read poetry mm. because he talks about this innate uncomfortableness that derives from poetry being an unreachable form of art that can never be perfect 
Uh, and it's an essay, so it was actually adaptations, all that kind of thing. So why why did you pick that up? What um, did you that? I really enjoyed the publisher, the Fitzcarraldo editions. Okay. They do beautiful books, and mm. I really wanted one by them. But a lot of their books are very literary and very unassailable to me personally. So I bought an essay because I thought it would be easier. Cool. I, honestly, it was really inspiring. I was thinking Sounds about interesting. it was thinking about like, poetry as a vehicle for human understanding, and also he talked really, really, he really. In, talked really interestingly about the white male voice in poetry as well. So the last book I read was The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Joan Didion is a very iconic American author and journalist. I've actually never read anything by her until now. Uh-huh. This book was recommended to me by a friend at university and it's about um, Joan Didion's um, year spent really in mourning and grieving over her husband who died very suddenly so it's an autobiographical work and I was always put off by that incredibly depressing premise yeah and was always kind of like not quite sure I wanted to read it but you know you sort of think you have to pick your moment and I was actually inspired to pick it up when I read the Goodreads reviews because one of the things we were talking about was how in Goodreads the reviews are by like real people versus critics and not to disparage critics but I think you often tend to maybe relate a little bit more to a sort of casual review it's more Um, word of mouth isn't it yeah people were saying how it was very cathartic for them and quite healing and um, an interesting thing to read if you have like experienced any recent deaths in your family or friends or you know somebody who has and so I thought oh okay this is interesting and it is very moving and very interesting and just about her kind of dealing with this very difficult thing that happens to her and I found it it's very it's quite emotional but it's also quite it is cathartic is definitely the word and I think if you are someone who if you are experiencing anything like that or you know somebody someone close to you has experienced something like that mm-hmm. and you're trying to relate to them like it could be a really good read and she's a wonderful writer and it definitely made me want to read more by her mm-hmm. I gave it five stars ah yeah, yeah. seems fair the next one I read um, was the third in a fantasy uh, series, a YA kind of fantasy style. So it's, right. um, I hesitate to say YA because YA implies it's written for teenagers. It's not. It's more, it, it contains YA themes of okay. like um, growing up and uh, growing up in romance and drama and yeah. that kind of thing. So uh, it's called A Conjuring of Light by V.E. Schwab. That's her pseudonym. Um, it's the third in the Shades of Magic series, which is basically about four parallel worlds that are linked by magic and magic is drained from one dying in one thriving in one and then not present in one mm. and our london the one we recognize mm. is known as great london okay. uh, but it's set in this red london of magic and it's basically about like a crown and a kingdom that's basically being assaulted by magic coming from the like the, the dead magic zone of the different black london um and um essentially it's the third in the series and each book has been so far has been very different like the first one is establishing the actual story the second one's a bit more like a middle east standalone the third one is like wrapping the whole thing up and essentially i love the schwab her imagination is second only to laney taylor um and i read it because i was like you know what i i it's one of those books where i picked it up and i was like exact i know exactly that i will like it because yeah. um it's just it's the, just it just plays into all the strengths for me so i get that one five stars as well because nice. i've read a lot of fantasy and her stuff is literally just beyond the pale good so that was what i read uh, so the next book that i read was swing time by zadie smith uh, which is her most recent novel mm-hmm. about two girls growing up and you know navigating the trials and tribulations of adulthood whilst also um having this other element of 
well, there's this also navigating kind of their friendship as like two women who are both very close to one another, but also occasionally have a competitive streak. Um, they're also both mixed race girls growing up in North London, yeah. and they've kind of surrounded by they're, they're kind of the only girls that they know in that situation. Um, but swing time is obviously also the uh, name of the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers movie. Yes, um, I, I can hear the music in my head. Yeah, and. Uh, the main character and her best friend who are the, the two main characters really uh, are in love with those classic movies and classic musicals and I really enjoyed that aspect of it because I, that That's, was definitely me yeah, as a young sure. girl and I also just thought like it's quite similar plot wise to um, My Brilliant Friend by Eleanor Franti oh, of course. having that, that kind of like female friendship that can be a little, a little bit toxic but uh-huh. also like quite relatable in uh-huh. terms of you do often have that maybe competitive streak as a young, a young girl um, so I really enjoyed it and thought it was very well, very well written and very well constructed as kind of presenting these two different characters who are have these similarities um, in passion and determination, but also their lives end up taking a very different track. Um, I gave it four stars. I, I really enjoyed it, but it also, I, I read a couple of reviews where they said it's quite, um, it's more about creating a sense of time and space and purpose and potentially a plot yeah like it's it's more kind of like incidental which i really enjoyed um but it's maybe let it's less plot driven than other books that i've read yeah but it was my first novel that i read by zadie smith and i definitely would read more i thought it was really evocative of just growing up and her own interest in dance and in those 1930s movies and also her, with the way she kind of interrogated them like you know she kind of explored the idea of you looking back at something you enjoyed when you were a child as an adult and actually seeing the elements of it that were problematic yeah. and the elements of it that don't really stand up to our um, modern um, discourse in like quite a clever way. So, sure. Yeah, good read, definitely. Cool. And the next thing I read was Uprooted by Naomi Novik, another more magical realism fantasy than pure fantasy book. Mm. Nomi Novik is the author of the Temeraire series, which is essentially Napoleonic Wars with dragons. <laughs> it's the best thing I can say about it. So it's more it's more rooted in the modern world or um, stories that we're familiar with, but she turns them on their head a bit. Uh, and I found up rooted um, on Goodreads. Because I was kind of looking around and I saw this and people said it was really good. And it has like a rose on the front and a tower. So I got Beauty and the Beast vibes. Um, and I was thinking it was like the rete- the the quotes on the book were saying like retelling of like fairy tales. Okay. And I was like, okay, sounds like my vibe. I love a good retelling of a fairy tale, especially a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale. Mm. So I read it and essentially it's kind of different. It's based in her Lithuanian heritage. So it sort of feels like it's set in like a medieval Eastern Europe. Like Agnieszka is the main character. There's a lot of like Eastern European influences there, and the their myths that are very close related to like the woods and nature are kind of built into it. So it's basically mm. she lives in a small village in, in this wood, which is actually like a very evil presence, and the only thing that keeps the wood from like overpowering them is this like magician who lives in a tower nearby, who's sort of like a feudal lord kind of thing. Okay. Um, and every ten years he takes somebody from the village, a young woman, away to his tower every 10 years they come back and they're changed and they end up just leaving the town and no one really knows why. So he comes to the town, everyone thinks he's going to choose her best friend but instead he chooses her and it turns and then it's all about like her first, it's about like her experience living and working with him and it turns out she's a witch, she could do magic and she learns more about the wood and about the court and kingdom that exists that she's part of and like the 
what's beneath the life that she's known. And she also falls in love with the guy in the tower. So I had to kind of stick around for that. And again, the it, for me, I give it five stars because the imagination, the writing quality is just so up there. Um, the character of Agnieszka, the main girl, is really interesting. She's very much like um, uh, like one of the main characters from any of those sort of like dystopian films, lead right. the lead woman, that mm. she's very independent. She's just what she wants. And she causes the main guy a lot of strife by just like doing what she wants. And... It was a really, I also really liked it because of the sense of like the Baba Yaga, the story of like the forest witch. Mm. Um, It's very much rooted in that as well, which is kind of Eastern European as well, Um, Russian. So I really love that she was drawing off her heritage because it was really interesting to sort of get this like very Slavic kind of boost of fairy tales it made it even more magical for me Mm. and um, I I love this kind of thing completely up my street and Naomi Novik is a great author so that was what I read I'm giving them all five stars I love the last three books that I read sadly so well finally the third book I read most recently was Tin Man by Sarah Winman which I had seen a lot in Waterstones and seen being heralded as this like really great read it's one of those where you read the blurb and you just think I don't really like this doesn't really give anything away it said it was about two men and then this woman who comes into their life and I thought okay this is going to be a kind of love triangle I knew it was set in the present day with kind of flashbacks so I was definitely picturing a kind of quite conventional read about like a love triangle in days gone by but actually it's quite different than you think it's going to be and the love triangle definitely has a twist that you wouldn't perhaps assume from reading the blurb it delves into like the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. It's got a kind of really great like summer romance that kind of reminded me of Call Me By Your Name a bit. And it's got that kind of, well, it's got this like multi-layered element of that I think is really interesting when you're reading a book. Like there's a kind of book within a book at one point. And it also just really talks about how it feels to be a person who loves and loses somebody and then tries to keep their memory alive. And, um, how your friendships can be um affected by your romantic relationships but also not affected and how those just how those different relationships can kind of coexist coexist and it's got um two very strong narrative voices and it was just a really good read it's a very slim book um but very emotional and effective and it just really surprised me i really enjoy it when a book is quite Mm -hmm. different than you think it's going to be i gave it four stars because i loved it but I did find that there's these two male characters who are both really well drawn, really interesting, and have really exciting but, um, narrative lives. But the female yeah, character, okay. even though it was written by a female author, um, perhaps wasn't as strong. And I just kind of felt that she was very uh, slight spoiler alert. I think it's quite nice to go into this book having not really got any idea what's going on, a bit like me when I read it. But basically, there's these two male characters who it's definitely. Is the implication slash the way it's described is that they are in love with one another and have had this relationship since they were quite young and then she comes in and marries one of them and that relationship is equally as strong and she's kind of totally fine with that like she doesn't mind that her husband has this other man other man life, who's yeah. very important to him and I'm not saying that's not realistic like I'm sure some people might have that relationship but I didn't really feel as though her feelings on it were really discussed or kind of described it was more just like she was cool with it just has to be convenient yeah yeah she just wasn't as big a character and don't get me wrong i was pleased that the emphasis was on this romantic relationship between between two men like i was excited that that was the main plot line but 
it would have been nice to see how it affected this woman and I know I discussed it with my mum who also read this book and she said it was almost as though the female character was kind of when you were imagining her you sort of imagined her set in the 1940s or something mm, rather like than a like housewife, the yeah. Ni- yeah yeah which was kind of odd but equally of the three main characters she was the one whose narrative voice wasn't really explored yeah so I think perhaps that was why but I really enjoyed it overall and I fully recommend it so yeah I feel like we've all been we've been reading some interesting things and this definitely proves yeah that we read very different books we don't really have the same taste which is great actually I do just want to give one more shout out to another book that was further down on my list oh I I actually wanted to as well okay cool cool um the Goldfinch. Oh, yes. By Donna Tartt. Yeah, Donna Tartt is a good writer. That's so very true. I had never read this book before, um, but I remember when it came out and everyone talked about it. Um, I think I definitely, when I was at university, didn't as read as much for pleasure as I do now because yeah. I was just busy with uni reading, having studied English. And there's like a couple of books I sort of missed out on when they were really popular for that reason. Anyway, finally read it, loved it. Like, it's such a good book. Have you read it? My friend stole it from me, so no. Tash, give it back to me. I mean, I have it in my house, so I can give it to you. But it's, I read it while I was away for the weekend um, and I was traveling a lot. So it was a really good book for that because it's quite hefty. Yes. And I think actually kind of devoting a lot of time to it is probably the way to read it. And it's interesting because it's kind of got this comparison with Harry Potter because it's about this boy who, uh, spoiler alert, but it happens early on, becomes an orphan. Um, and he's kind of finding his way in the world in a manner not dissimilar to Harry Potter. So mm-hmm. although it's not fantasy, it's kind of got an element of the Harry Potter and also its readability and the way that the world is kind of constructed definitely reminded me of like J.K. Rowling's writing in some ways. Um, and it's just really good book. Like, I think I give it four stars on Goodreads because towards the end it does kind of like diverge a bit into this kind of crime thriller. Mm. And there's some quite kind of like, there's a bit that are a little bit slower, but as a general rule, I keep thinking about it. I'm so excited for the film. Mm. Um, so you'll, you'll love this because he, um, the boy ends up going and living in Las Vegas mm. and he befriends this kind of slightly crazy, but kind of lovable Russian guy, um, <laughs> sure. who is going to be played by Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. Oh! Oh, cool. Yeah, which yeah. I thought would be an interesting role for him um, in the film. Because yeah. that leads me on to the point that it's going to be made into a movie. Um, Nicole Kidman is going to play this kind of like ice queen, adoptive mother. Classic. So, Love yeah, it. I'm excited for the film. I think it could kind of go either way, but I really enjoyed the book. And I've now just started reading The Secret History, which Ooh, is one that's of the freaky, books. that one. I read that Have one. Have you? Yeah. It's freaky. Interesting. It's about yeah. like cults. Yeah. And classic and classics. And it's just like nuts. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Like the gold. And drug use as well. It's just crazy. The Goldfinch, I think, is is maybe more, like, um... Readable. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I haven't read the other book, but I feel like it's kind of... That had, like, a sort of mass popularity and um, people yeah. were quite into it. But, yeah, I really loved it. I definitely recommend it. Cool. Um, well, I want to talk about, really quickly, um, I was... Uh, I, I was at work um, looking through books to add to the site, and um, a book came out, a book kind of got like flash up to me because it's being, was being published in the UK because it won the Pulitzer mm. in the States for uh, literature. So it won it this year. It's called Less by Andrew Sean Greer. And it's basically, um, and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Okay. And I put it on my list and had a read of it when I was, um, I think I read it like two weeks ago. Oh my gosh. So it's all about this, um, it's written by uh, a gay man. And it's all about this guy called 
Andrew Less, who is a kind of not a failed writer, but like he's just like a writer who's been like riding on the coattails of like a famous, uh, uh, another famous writer who won a Pulitzer, okay. um, who he was a lover of for nine years. He was much older than him and their relationship broke down. He's sort of been drifting around. And mm. then he had a nine year relationship with a man who was much younger than him. And that relationship kind of broke down and he gets an invite to his ex lovers a wedding and mm. decides he doesn't want to go so he decides to try and just set off and like take up any invitation he can for anything literary related to do with his job basically because he is basically like a writer right. but like a sort of like hesitant not that famous guy he's more famous for who he's had a relationship with than anything else okay. and he just goes around the world meeting these people Go. he goes to like Mexico Morocco he goes to um, Japan he goes to Germany he has relationships and flings with people around the world he meets some really interesting people including like a ridiculously hilarious woman in like Morocco and they go on camels together and it's like a kind of like a fun travelogue okay. but also it's kind of like investigating his relationship as a gay man in like the modern day his relationships with the men that he's loved um, and one of them was married and the other one was like younger and it was all about like age difference and also about him being like a, a bad gay people call him a bad gay because mm. he writes stories about you know about homosexual people which are too sad so he's like he's like disassociating he tries to like people see him as disassociating himself from his gay identity because he won't give people in his stories happy endings and stuff so it's kind of an investigation of what it is to be a gay man in the modern mm. day which i it's just a fre- it's a really fresh voice yeah. one thing but it's also a really funny travelogue and a really oh, heartwarming that, really good. love yeah. story and it won the pulitzer and i got halfway through it i was like i don't understand like this isn't that funny and it's like not really that interesting i guess like it's i don't get it and then i got to the end and i was like oh my god that was so good i enjoyed it so much i understand everything now and it was just a really beautiful book yeah really little little gem so i really recommend that one it's so heartwarming and so sweet and then as you get to the end you realize what's going to happen and you're like oh yay so yeah i loved it it definitely i see why it won the pulitzer we'll just quickly say that the the man booker long list has been announced yes which is what has kind of inspired the books today so we were excited to see um the results of that i don't think i've read any of the books on the list no um what's really interesting about this list it's been curated by kwame anthony appiah so he is a a poet and philosopher and the man booker has been criticized um in recent years for not being diverse enough Mm. and being a bit boring and and basically like pandering to the tastes of the uplift of the jury voices and the intelligentsia and to american work as well which i don't disagree with in lots of ways so the man booker was under a lot of pressure this year to release a list that was diverse had men and women because in the last four decades of the prize i think 17 women have won which right. is a very small number. And the list actually is very refreshing. There's six women, six men and seven women. Yeah. There's some really great debuts on there. Some long-time winners like Michael Ondaatje's mm. Warlight. Um, there's the first graphic novel to ever be listed. Um, there's a lot of stories about female empowerment and also yeah. like violence and poverty and real heavy issues. There's no one from the Commonwealth that's been list- shortlisted, which is a bit like long-listed, sorry. But... Overall, the man booker had lots of expectations to meet because people were starting to think it was getting dry. Well, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm really excited for Sally Rooney's new novel. Oh, she's, normal people. Yeah, yeah. So I read her book Conversations with Friends, which I absolutely loved. I read that quite. Yeah, recently. everyone seems to love that. Um, 
it's such a good book it's so well written and it really gets inside the female psyche um, particularly of like a young 21 year old girl who's kind of grappling with several like quite difficult things happening and like mm. relationships again it's just about relationships with other people as you can see i clearly like reading that kind of book um yeah but, i don't but that's the fun thing about books isn't yeah it? normal people her new novel um has already hasn't even come out yet but has already been long listed for the man booker so that comes out in september i'm really excited i kind of want to read it before then somehow because when we were talking about this ikea wembley thing i was like maybe that's how i can get my hands on this book oh because you know? ikea are doing reading rooms which yeah. is a really great uh, a really great collaboration yeah me too I mean I looked at the list I didn't know much but there's one called Washington Black which is like a, um, a talk, talking about slavery but it's also like an adventure novel which looks really interesting okay, yeah. so um, yeah I mean the man booker I mean the man booker has established itself again as a prize to watch and it's nice if you get like a list of books that have been long listed and you think, oh, I haven't really read any of them, but I really want to read now these books now that I've heard about them. That's like such a good publicity for those yeah. novels. Yeah, and I really think it's also good. Excited. It's also good that none of them, none of them are su- apart from Michael and Darche, none of them are big hitters in terms of like just being blockbusters. Like they've actually been put together. It makes me feel they've been put together for their own merits, not just because they were published by Penguin, mm. which has been known to happen. Yeah, uh, I think. So well, when we next check in with you, we'll let you know if we I managed to read any of the books on the list. Yeah, um, when, I mean, I don't think I'm going to be able to get the IKEA reading room. Sadly, which but. is so sad. Like IKEA, if you're listening, keep it open for yeah, longer. Yeah, I love IKEA and I love books. Come yeah, on. like we would have such a good day out there we if would. it would only work. We did you have to go in a car lunch break or something? Um, <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, sorry, I'm just going to go and drive to Wembley. Excuse me. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, so we'll be talking about that. Hope I think we're also. Oh well, Malmere Two is going to be on the list. Yes, about that. One other thing that we haven't discussed is the plethora of Netflix original films that have come out recently. Oh, of sure. Of which I have watched quite a, quite a lot. So there's a lot to, lot for getting on with. Yeah, um, but certainly we're going to discuss Mamma Mia too. So if you were like hoping for that this time, don't worry, it is coming. Yes, we will talk about that in detail. Yes. We have many thoughts already and I haven't even seen the film yet. <laughs> um, but that's it from us this week. Yeah, thank you for listening. And as normal, uh, please get in touch with us via Twitter mm-hmm. um, at Love Slavers Watched. No, at Real LLW. Oh, God, Helen normally does that bit. Sorry. <laughs> you do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> at Real LLW is our Twitter name. We are Love Slavers Watched on Instagram. That's right. And we're hoping to get our Instagram um, a bit more spicy. Yeah, over the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye on that. And you can always email us at loveslaverswatched at gmail.com. No junk mail, please. Um, and yeah, um, we have a great time on our social media when we can. So, and of course you can listen to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. That's all obvious. And we will see you hopefully next week or two. Can't say which one. Yeah. The next couple of weeks we'll be back. Yeah. Okay. Bye guys. Bye.